I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Well, it's ordinary time, but you wouldn't know it because we are just covered up with feasts. I mean, it's just one after another. It's almost like um, we we got finished with Easter and we had that 50 days of feasting and, and the church is like, you know, technically we're supposed to be in ordinary time, but okay, I'll give you one more feast. It's like the parent that that keeps extending bedtime, right? So we had uh, we had the feast of Pentecost, which was the end of the Easter season. Then we had the feast of the Holy Trinity. And then we had uh, the feast of, uh, gosh, what was next? Uh, Corpus Christi. And then uh, and then it just it just keeps coming. We've got um, this week, uh, Sacred Heart. Well, we had John the Baptist, the Nativity of John the Baptist, and then the uh, feast, the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart yesterday. Today is the feasts of Saints Peter and Paul, and it's like, you know, eventually, eventually we're supposed to get to ordinary time, and uh, and things are supposed to calm down a little bit. Uh, a couple of days ago, we celebrated the, the feast of our Lady of Perpetual Help, and that's that's a title for Mary that's very near and dear to our hearts as a family. So uh, we made uh, late, you know, it was later in the day when when it kind of came to mind that it was that feast, and I was going to be working late. And uh, and nevertheless, I called home and said, "Oh, we have to we have to do something because this is the day." Uh, and so my my darling bride. Uh, made cupcakes and we had blue icing on top of it and we celebrated and we said to the kids it's the feast of our lady of perpetual help we we didn't do a whole lot throughout the whole day but we wanted to set the day apart and we try to do these kind of celebrations with the kids uh, on a fairly regular basis so on their uh their birthday or their uh the name day the day that their uh, their patron saint or their uh the saint that they're named after their feast day, we try to do a big thing. Uh, their baptismal day, we try to do a thing. Uh, and and there are a lot of these days that are around. Uh, but the ones I really love celebrating are these feasts that are not specifically about a person or a name or a specific story uh, of their life, but it's about some abiding lesson that's so important for us to know. So for Our Lady of Perpetual Help, we went through a particularly difficult season of life. And as a family, we prayed uh, to Mary through that specific title, through that devotion. Uh, We had that picture, the picture of Our Lady of Perpetual Help in a very prominent place in our living room, still do. And uh, so it meant something to us. And so as we now are on the other side of that, we remember God's care for us through the intercessions of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. We wanted to make a big deal about that. And then the next day, yesterday, was the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And we should never grow tired of trying to find new ways to convey the truth that God loves us. And many, if not most of us, have heard that many times over. Uh, we know the words. We can repeat them with our eyes closed. You know, we, we know that phrase. You go to any Sunday school class or religious education and they, they ask you a question, you know the answer is God loves us. Jesus loves us. And yet, uh, I think that we don't really fully understand the implications of that. We, we hear those words as a child and we receive them as a child. And then as we grow, 
uh, we never allow that understanding to grow along with us. We, we gain a deeper understanding of love as time goes on, but we don't allow that to, uh, to really be layered over uh, this idea that God loves us in that way. I remember when I first really um, started to get a deeper sense of this, not so much when, uh, when I fell in love, not so much when I uh, got engaged or got married. It was when I had children. And all of a sudden, every time that I had a feeling towards this child, uh, I, I get this little tap on my shoulder. And, and I'd, I'd hear the Holy Spirit say, that's, that's how I love you. That, that concern, that parental concern, that desire for their welfare, that, that, um, that affection not based on anything that they can do for you, that, that right there, that you're feeling towards your child, that is how I feel towards you. And man, what an eye-opener that was and continues to be. And yes, we know that God loves us, but we need to always approach those words with a fresh curiosity. What does it mean, God, that you love me like this? What does it mean, Jesus, that you care for me? and that you died for me. And to approach that really expecting a new and deeper answer uh, each time we approach it. Even St. Peter, in his, uh, in his second epistle, he talks about this a little bit. He, he says, I know you already know this. He says, nevertheless, therefore, I will always remind you of these things, even though you already know them and are established in the truth you have. I think it right as long as I am in this tent or this body to stir you up by a reminder, since I know that soon I will have to put it aside, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. So he knows he's getting close to his martyrdom, and, and he says, nevertheless, right now, as long as I am here, I'm going to continue to repeat the things that you already know to remind you of these things so that you can grow in the depth of that knowledge. And so here, as we're celebrating yesterday, the Feast of the Sacred Heart, um, let's put that in perspective. What does it mean that Christ uh, cares for you and loves you? Well, you, you've heard the term, uh, that person's a bleeding heart. The bleeding heart is that person who uh, throws rationality to the wind and has an overdeveloped sense of empathy and, you know, and so forth and so on, and uh, isn't, you know, doesn't really look into things as to whether they're credible. They just, they just want to give and give and give and give and not really take anything else into account. Well, that, that term, the bleeding heart, that comes from the image of the sacred heart where Christ has his bleeding heart and he's wearing it not on his sleeve, but right on his chest where we can see it. And that's how he feels toward you. That's how he feels about you. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. No amount of good deeds or perfection is ever going to cause that to change. God loves you. We're going to talk about that more in depth right after this break as we talk with Colleen Carroll Campbell about her new book, The Heart of Perfection. There's much more to come right after this, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily lives. I'm your host, T.L., and 
There's no implication of our faith more, I think, pressing and salient than this one. Uh, we, we talk about the fact that we are, are the sufferers of original sin, that we struggle with concupiscence our whole life, and that only by God's grace and his love are we redeemed and saved, and yet somehow we still m- press ourselves into this mold of thinking that we have to pull everything off on our own. We're talking today with Colleen Carol Campbell. Uh, she is the epitome of, of really looking at someone's life and thinking, wow, how do they pull it off? She's an award-winning author, print and broadcast journalist, former presidential speechwriter. Uh, her books include the critically acclaimed journalistic study, The New Faithful, her memoir, My Sisters, the Saints, and a brand new one, The Heart of Perfection, which you're looking at saying, yeah, that, that sounds like The Heart of Perfection. But no, The Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfect for God's. It's published right now by Simon & Schuster. And you you go through this book, Colleen, really uh, very vulnerably sharing your own struggle with perfectionism and, and pointing out the areas that uh, you're, you're striving for perfect and then also realizing your lack of perfect really was kind of ruining your, your life and your experience and your uh, everything else, your experience of motherhood. Um, and then you use the saints to draw us into some practices that pull us out of that trap uh, and into really recognizing that it's all grace. So thank you for joining us today. Um, talk a little bit about you, you, someone like me would look at your, your resume here and say, wow, that's, I don't measure up. Uh, and yet you who have this resume, of course, you feel the same thing as you look at others. Talk about the, maybe the scourge of perfectionism to start with, and we'll move on from there. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And yes, you know, it's interesting. I think we all look at each other's outsides and we tend to judge our insides by others' outsides. That's a phrase someone said to me once, and I think it's really good advice to be careful of doing that uh, because we all know the places in our own lives and our hearts and our faith where we fall short. And sometimes it's not as visible to others. So The Heart of Perfection is in many ways a pretty vulnerable book. And it grew out of my own struggle with perfectionism, which I did not recognize really until I became a mother uh, almost a decade ago. And very quickly realized that a lot of the strategies and ways of thinking that I felt had really helped me succeed in the world and in my career were not going to be a good fit for motherhood. Because <laughs> as you know, as a dad of seven, um, there is no way that children you know, follow our timelines, our expectations. And even more for me, it was my expectations of myself as a parent and all the things I thought I was going to get just right, partly because I had prayed and longed for children for so long that when they finally came along, and I have four now, um, you know, I had so many big dreams and plans and expectations for myself. And it was there that I finally came face to face with what I really think was a lifelong struggle with perfectionism, but it's there where the rubber hit the road and I had to deal with it. And as I began to deal with it, I discovered that the roots ran deeper and they ran into my relationship with God, which is what this book is really about is spiritual perfectionism. Yeah. You know, I I look at my life and I think, well, you know, I, I don't, struggle with perfectionism. Here are all my other faults that I know I struggle with, but, <laughs> but perfectionism isn't really one of them. And then I'm reading this book going, Nope, I got that. Nope. There's that right there. <laughs> and there's this, this realization that perfectionism is, uh, it doesn't look like we always think it does, right? It's not so much, um, the, 
uh, everything has to be perfect and, and I have to be perfect as much as it is, uh, I'm going to replay all of these episodes from my life over and over and over again and think, how could I have done that better? And really it ends up being an obsession with the past, uh, and a fear of the present that prevents us from really walking in freedom in our future. That's really, that's a great way to state it. I think that's exactly right. And it's funny, that's one of the main pieces of feedback I've gotten to the heart of perfection since it came out a few weeks ago is people saying, gee, you know, I just read this because I liked your last book or somebody recommended it, but I knew this wasn't for me. I thought maybe it could help this friend of mine in my life who drives me crazy. You know, she alphabetizes her CDs or color codes or socks or whatever. And then I started reading it and discovered, uh uh-oh, this is my problem too. And, you know, and that's why I begin the heart of perfection that way. The first sentence is, I never thought I was one of those perfectionists. And, you know, so there's a lot of ways this can take uh, form in our lives. And that was part of why I found the saints so helpful is because in these seven different saints that I profile in the heart of perfection, and this one heretic who gets her own chapter, partly because (laughs) he's a good cautionary tale, you see that it takes so many different forms. So there is not one type. There's not one personality that this manifests in. There's a lot of different ways. It can show up as anxiety, as beating ourselves up, as scrupulosity, as hypersensitivity, as discouragement, as a tendency to overcommit to good works. It can show up in so many different ways, but at the root of it is this sense that we have to in some way earn God's love, prove ourselves worthy of the gifts he's given us, and that if we fall short, He's ready to get us, or at least he wants us to beat ourselves up. And I think we really then miss the boat, that if we could perfect ourselves, why did Jesus come? We're talking today with Colleen Carol Campbell. One of the things that you do as a remedy of this is you point to the lives of the saints who then point us to a specific virtue. Uh, this is one of, I think, the, the beautiful things about the saints uh, and we, we kind of immerse ourselves in the saints and immerse my, my kids. You know, we do every night, we do a, um, a, a litany where we just mm-hmm. mention the, the saints and ask for their intercessions. And speaking of perfectionism, my, my kids really, they like to find, okay, what's the, what's the, the one that no one else is going to pick. I'm going to be super <laughs> good and I'm going to pick some obscure saint that no one else has ever heard of. And that <laughs> look at me, but, but at the same time, that means they're having to go find the saints, and that means that we're right. asking for their intercession. Um, for me, I, I have a specific devotion to St. Maximilian Kolbe because mm-hmm. of, well, for many reasons, but I have a picture of his messy desk over my messy desk <laughs> for for two reasons. One, because um, if he is has a messy desk and made it to be a saint, you know, there's hope for me. But but two, now that he's been purified of that through uh, through the process and now he's in heaven in, uh, as a saint, he in a specific way can pray for me in my failures because he can identify with those and hopefully help me into a, a sanctity that may include a messy desk and may include maybe some better practices to get away from that. Uh, so talk about this this idea of going to the saints whether through prayer, whether through uh, uh, interacting with your life. What does your devotion to the saints look like? And how did that bring you to a place where uh, it drew you into better practices, better spiritual practices and better spiritual health? Well, I began my interest in the saints as a kid, as um, I think many cradle Catholics do. You know, I read about them. I think saints are naturally interesting to kids because they're real life people who, 
you know, sometimes the folks in the Bible can seem very distant from us, but many of the saints, we even have ones in the 20th century so we can relate to them. Then I went through a long period where I thought saints were goody two-shoes and irrelevant to my life. And then I rediscovered them as I wrote about in my last book, uh, My Sisters the Saints, how, how these six women saints, including Mary, the mother of God, really got me through some severe trials in my life and some difficulties with infertility and my father's uh, battle with Alzheimer's disease. So I had come to see the saints as real friends, not only as... Um, those who could intercede for me, but those from whom I could learn through their example and their writings, how to, how to live my own life and navigate my own troubles. But when it came to perfectionism, I thought this was one problem that maybe I should steer clear of the saints with because, <laughs> you know, in sense, I started to think maybe they trigger me. Maybe that's my problem. I'm reading too much about these spiritual overachievers. Then I'm looking at my life and I'm seeing all the places I fall short. Maybe it would be better to sort of dodge them for a while. And I continued to speak about them publicly. I continued to pray for their intercession, but I started not to read their readings as much because I, uh, their writings rather as much in their lives for a period. And then I began to go back to them, but looking at them from a new lens. And this is where a lot of the heart of perfection uh, takes off is because I looked at saints like Therese of Lisieux, whose little way of being charitable to everyone and everything just sometimes felt overwhelming to me. And I started to see that hidden in that was a recovering perfectionist, someone who used to beat herself up over her, her feelings of wanting to retaliate against some of these nuns who were so grouchy to her, or her, her overly indulgent you know, self-pity over little hurts and all of this. And I started to see in each of these saints elements, again, that I could relate to as a recovering perfectionist and to see that contrary to what I think I thought, maybe I wouldn't have said it this way, but years ago, I think I thought that it was their willpower, their striving, yes, cooperation with grace, but a heavy emphasis on their end of that bargain, right? Their cooperation, their, their virtues that got them to where they were. And the more I reread their stories in researching the heart of perfection, the more I recognized it was surrender, not striving. That was the turning point for each of these seven saints. That's where you begin to see the fruits of their holiness really start to blossom. And so seeing it in that vein, recognizing that they were some driven people uh, like I am in many ways, but it was when they let go of a lot of that drivenness, when they really started to bear fruit for the kingdom, that really inspired me and helped me. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my confessor recently said to me, that the desire for something is already proof of God's action, right? Mm -hmm. If we desire to be, um, to grow in virtue, if we desire to have a heart after God. Now, in fact, in uh, Christ himself says, blessed are those who hunger, who have the desire, hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be feel, filled. Mm -hmm. And in this moment of, of uh, even the first inkling of the desire before we, as we recognize all of our shortcomings and recognize the lack of the thing we hunger for, that's the right. moment that God is already working. And mm. so sitting back and saying, okay, God, I'm going to get out of your way and let you do that work <laughs> so that we can bring this to completion. That's right. And completion. Another thing we, you know, we talk about perfectionism and we see in scripture and you mentioned this in the book, we see in scripture, this call to perfection, be perfect as I am perfect. Uh, but we think of perfection as flawless mm -hmm. and scripture talks of perfection as mature and complete. And mm -hmm. so I think that as long as we have these competing ideas of what perfection is, we're never going to really hit that mark. 
That's right. That in the biblical sense, perfection is more of a wholeness. And, you know, holiness is wholeness. And that means wholeness in our in all of the parts of our lives. And I think this is a real theme that I um, drive home a lot in the heart of perfection because it was driven home to me by the lives of these saints. And that is that the longing we have for perfection, as you said, it's put there by God. And I really believe that's our longing for God. And so when the world tells us that the cure to perfectionism is just lower your standards, go easy on yourself, tell yourself you're already perfect just the way you are. Well, I don't know about you, but I know I'm not perfect right. just the way I am. And I know that there's no point for Jesus to come if I could have just perfected myself. It would have been a whole lot easier on everyone. So we're not perfect the way we are. We weren't meant to be. That's why we need a savior. Savior, but um, that longing that we have for the perfect, that's a longing for the infinite, for God. And God wants to fulfill that. The problem is we substitute our own ideas of perfection for his. And so that's why in the heart of perfection, the saints and I talk a lot about um, the difference between the world's idea of perfect, which does tend to be this white knuckled flawlessness, everything in order, all my ducks in a row, everything under control. And gospel perfection, which is very much, again, about surrender. It's about forgiveness. It's about humility. It's about letting God lead us where he will and not allowing ourselves to become so locked into our own plans that we can't let go and follow his. Mm -hmm. We're talking today with Colleen Carol Campbell. She's got a brand new book, The Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfect for God's, available now by Simon & Schuster. There's much more to come in this conversation as we explore the depths of how God helps us to enter into his vision of perfection. Specifically, we're going to talk about the the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, whose feast day we just celebrated yesterday. Join us over on social media and be a part of that conversation, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and we're talking today with Colleen Carol Campbell. She is the author of a brand new book from Simon & Schuster Publishers, The Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfection for God's. So glad to have you on the show today, Colleen. So glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. So you have this fantastic book. I first uh, found out about it uh, just a couple of days ago on a piece on Aletia, where they talked about your you found the cure to perfectionism. Like that sounds like an interesting article. The cure <laughs> to perfectionism uh, in in the Sacred Heart. Of course, uh, yesterday um, on Friday was the the feast of the Sacred Heart, and uh, and. I, I, you know, I, I have the image that you talked about in your, uh, in your book, this image of the sacred heart that, that has, uh, for God so loved the world under a gorgeous picture. We'll put a picture up, uh, a link up on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls, Twitter, the handles at outside the walls. Most of you've already seen it. Uh, but if you haven't, it's really striking. It's a striking image of the sacred heart. Um, and, and so I, I've, I've seen the sacred heart. I know the prayers to the sacred heart, but you talk about the saints who helped you battle perfection all had a, a devotion to the sacred heart. Now I know I can't be alone in this. I'm a convert. Um, and I hear terms like devotion to the saints or devotion to the sacred heart. And, and 
I pray to the saints and I read the lives of the saints and I feel informed by them and I feel strengthened by their stories. Uh, but I, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know if, <laughs> if that really encompasses what the word devotion means. And then you have this idea of the devotion to the sacred heart um, as a specific aspect of the life of Christ rather than a devotion to Christ or, or some other. What, what does it mean? What does it look like practically to have a quote-unquote devotion to the sacred heart? And how does that help you battle your perfectionism? Yeah, well, this is a question that I struggled with a lot because, again, I'm the cradle Catholic and I was raised to see the sacred heart images around. I never feel like anyone completely explained it to me. Uh, and they always kind of made me feel kind of big guilty. I'm not sure. <laughs> Jesus always looks so sad in those pictures. Sometimes you would see them in this kind of slightly androgynous figure and it was sort of these sort of maudlin and it just didn't appeal to me very much as a kid other than to make me feel slightly guilty for whatever little schoolyard, you know, taunts or whatever I'd done wrong that particular day. And um, through my life, though, I had met some Catholics I really admire, I consider very prayerful, even holy people who had this intense devotion to the Sacred Heart. So I knew it was important, but maybe like you're describing, I wasn't sure I, I got what that was. And um, I remember being at Franciscan University of Steubenville in my 20s on the heels of kind of my adult reconversion to the faith. Never stopped going to church, but started taking it more seriously again. And seeing the image that you described that you're going to put on your webpage of, of Christ and the Sacred Heart with in Latin, those words in, inscribed for God so of the world, uh, quote from John three sixteen, and feeling for the first time, maybe it was because the image was more realistic. The Jesus looked more, I don't know, commanding, masculine, more, more like a real guy. Um, and the eyes were very piercing and I saw the suffering and I don't know, it just touched my heart. So I bought that image and I took it home and I put it up in my apartment and I've had it in, in the entryway of every home I've been in since right up till today. And at the same time, I still struggle with that that question. And so it was only when I was researching the heart of perfection and noticing that every single one of these saints that I found because they were struggling with some aspect of perfectionism and overcame it, I kept seeing this theme over and over, this devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. And I saw it in almost every single one of their lives. And sometimes it was more overt and sometimes it was more subtle, but it was always there. And I thought, all right, I think God is trying to tell me something here. And I think there must be more to this than I've figured out so far. So I began digging into the history, the scriptural and the patristic roots of this devotion. And the entire last chapter of the Heart of Perfection is sort of the, the fruit of that research that I did, both into the lives of these saints and how kind of how this devotion connects all of them, and also where we got this devotion, which really, it goes back to the very earliest days of the church, which I was surprised to learn because I think sometimes we think it was invented by uh, St. Margaret Mary because of her, her visions of the Sacred Heart. Well, that was a very important turning point in terms of popularizing the devotion, but it's been there since the beginning, since since John rested on the breast of Christ, since since the blood and water poured forth from the side of Christ. And St. Augustine and, and Irenaeus and so many others pointed to the heart of Christ as really being the font of our of, of grace, the place where the church is born. And then all of these different recovering perfectionist saints had really intense devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. So it would be too much to try to summarize in just one answer. But I right. will say, I think the key here is, for me at least, uh, vulnerability. 
I think that's so much the opposite of what a perfectionist tends to strive for. We want to get it all together. We want to have it under control. We want to clean up our act. We wouldn't mind if everyone else cleaned up theirs too. And so much of the sacred heart is about allowing our hearts to be open and to be vulnerable, even to be wounded again and again as Christ's heart was. And well, how do you do that? How do you forgive yourself for all the things that you look back and think, why didn't I do that better? How do you forgive others who maybe saw your perfectionism and took advantage of it? How do you move past that sense of fixating on the past, as you mentioned in your opening to the show, and moving forward to the future? That's a heart that's vulnerable and wide open and willing to keep loving even through hurt. And that's that heart, the only heart that can really do that perfectly well, is the sacred heart of Christ. And so over and over again in the lives of these saints, what I kept coming back to, so many of them said, not I want a heart like Christ, I'm praying for Jesus to change my heart, but rather I am exchanging my heart for the heart of Christ. Christ, let your heart be my heart, because I can't do this with my frail human heart, but I can love others the way you're calling me to if I love them with your heart. And that's what Therese of Lisieux and so many others described. And that's what I really think can be a key for those of us who otherwise struggle with what can feel like an outdated or amorphous devotion. If you're just joining us, we're talking today with Colleen Carroll Campbell. And this is also something that all the way back in the prophets, God promised as his desire for us that I'll take away their hearts of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. That there's this uh, this law that will be inscribed on our hearts and it's the new heart that he will give us. You know, perfectionism, we, we get so much uh, uh, compulsion and so much uh, drive from this this desire and this perception that everything has to be perfect. We are compelled by our, let's say, neuroses for, uh, if we're being generous. Um, but Paul talks about a different compelling. He says, therefore, the love of Christ compels us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this love that comes from from the heart of Christ, and you mentioned as well that the heart symbolizes the whole person, that we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, our whole mind, and our whole strength, uh, that that as we come to really rest in and and be embraced by the love and the whole person of Christ, that's what compels us into a life of holiness, not, not any amount of white-knuckling it or saying, I'm going to do better next time or anything like that, but rather the perfection comes when we quit trying to do it and right. allow the, Christ, the heart of Christ to be the motor that drives that train. Exactly. And that's an acceptance, of course, of our human weakness, which in many ways is what the sacred heart reveals to us, right? It's a pierced heart of Christ. It's not this impenetrable heart. It's not, you know, it's interesting when when Thomas is trying to figure out if it's the real Jesus he sees after the resurrection, Jesus doesn't show him his, his muscles, he shows him his wounds, right? And that's what he shares with us. And he's showing us, I think, the beauty that can shine through our human weakness, which can sound nice and fluffy when you say it, but it's actually very difficult to live. Uh, one thing I think, though, is it's interesting about the Sacred Heart devotion, and that motivated me in, in maybe a, an odd sort of way, was to dis- 
discover that um, the proponents of probably the most notorious perfectionist heresy in church history, other than Pelagianism, and that is the Jansenists, right? These 16th, 17th century, uh, you know, very hard view of God. I mean, everything was the tiny little group that's going to get in and everybody else is damned and everything is about terror of God and his judgment. And, you know, they talked a good game on grace, but they were all about trying to figure it out. And um, they even had a crucifix that was narrow. You know, Jesus's arms are in a V instead of a T in the Jansenist crucifix. Just to remind you, not many people are getting it. (laughs) This is a tough group of people. Interestingly, though, they hated the sacred heart devotion and they almost single-handedly managed to snuff it out at a time when it was really starting to take off with St. Margaret Mary. And she was, of course, a visitation sister who, uh, you know, descended from the spiritual ranks of Francis de Sales and Jane de Chantal, two saints I spend a lot of time with in the heart of perfection. And they would make fun of what they called the heart worshipers and say it was so, to them, it was kind of uh, embarrassing because it's so earthy. It's so much about the incarnational Christ. And I think in a sort of reverse sort of way, that tells us how important this is, that these, you know, uber perfectionists hated it because I think they recognized that it was a real um, threat to their vision of this very harsh and narrow God, because the sacred heart is about God's mercy and love. Yes, he's always calling us to something better, but he also loves us where we are. He embraces us in our weakness and his, his mercy and his compassion is infinite. And He was incarnated in the flesh for us. He took on our human weakness. So how can we despise our weakness when Jesus himself took on that weakness? And the Jansenists really despised human weakness, and the Sacred Heart reminds us to embrace our weakness. And remember with St. Paul that when I am weak, then I am strong. That's when grace really operates through us. And again, this is easy stuff to talk, but this is tough stuff to live as the saints show us, right? Because embracing our weakness, our vulnerability, our wounds means being exposed to others. It means having to be humble. It means having to admit we screwed up again for the 15th time today on the same thing and asking once again for forgiveness. But that's in the lives of the saints. That's where you see them really begin to bear fruit is when they do embrace that vulnerability and stop trying to kind of white knuckle it themselves. One of the things in the last couple of minutes here that I found so fascinating and telling about your early chapters is the the tenderness with which God revealed to you your perfectionism. You know, you were in the midst of this uh, overwhelming experience as a, as a new mom, the lack of sleep and everything else that comes along with that. Uh, and that's when you first had this realization. But then uh, fast forward a couple of years as you are rushing into the ER um, and you are going through your whole litany of everything that you did wrong. And those little voices of truth that begin to break through of saying, uh, maybe not quite what you think. Uh, maybe, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's okay to be loved and to let yourself off a little bit. And just the, the tenderness with, and the patience with which God reveals to us our own perfectionism, not in a, oh, you blew it again, you slipped back into perfectionism, how awful, and kind of (laughs) perpetuating that idea, but really drawing you into his heart and his affection for you in order to draw you out of that perfectionism yourself. Yeah, that was a real revelation to me. Uh, The fact that part of the perfectionist package 
is that voice that beats us up after we've slipped back into it. You know, a lot of people say, oh, perfectionism. Yeah, that's one of my problems. Oh, you know, I have to deal with that. No. And then it just is added on to the list of things that are wrong with me that I have to beat myself up about. But that's really, that was a revelation to me in that moment. And I write about it in the heart of perfection, how it was the first time that I really recognized that that critical voice, I think we all carry around in our heads was not the voice of the Lord. That's not how he talks to me. He didn't die on the cross or create me from nothing and love me into being so he could just wrap me on the knuckles every time I make a slip. And so when I realized that, that that gracious voice, that gracious voice of forgiveness, that was God's, that really was a turning point for me. We're talking today with Colleen Carroll Campbell. You can find out more about her and find her works over at Colleen-Campbell.com. Pick up Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfect for God's, wherever fine books are sold. There's more to this conversation with Colleen available to all who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner to find out more. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. Uh, We've been talking today about God's deep love for us and the fact that there's really nothing that we can do uh, to earn God's love. And that really has some strong implications for our life. If we really believe that there's nothing that we can do apart from faith to please God, uh, then it changes the way that we operate. Uh, If I think that I have to earn God's pleasure, then I'm going to go and I'm going to spend more time in devotion and I'm going to serve more at the church and I'm going to volunteer and I'm going to do all of these things that look really good. Uh, And yet, if they're done out of a heart of trying to earn God's favor, then all I will end up with is frustration and burnout because I can never achieve the thing I'm longing for so deeply. And yet... There's nothing I can do to please God apart from faith. There's nothing I can do to unite myself with God other than to accept his gift of grace to me. Now, at the same time, when I have received that gift of grace and I have received the love of God, I'm going to serve more. I'm going to be active in my faith. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to be more uh, active in these devotions. And this when it is the result of a heart of gratitude and the result of that fulfillment, now all of a sudden it's enough. When I try to use those things to get fulfillment, it's never enough. But when those things are a response to the fulfillment I've already been given through the the receiving relationship with God the Father, now all of a sudden it makes a difference. I'm empowered to continue to do those things and to serve the church and to uh, to be active in my faith life because it comes out of the heart of gratitude. We explored that idea a little bit today with our guest, Colleen Carroll Campbell, uh, and her new book on Simon & Schuster Press called The Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfect for God's. Uh, we unpacked this this battle of perfectionism, and we unpacked this devotion to the Sacred Heart and how much God loves us. 
Uh, if you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with your friends, have no fear. It is archived, or will be very soon, uh, over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Uh, as soon as the show finishes airing, you can go and download it, share it to social media, anything you want right there at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, there's extra content. There's more to my conversation with uh, Colleen that didn't make it into this broadcast, but it's available to those who support the show through Patreon. Uh, the Patreon supporters form a community that help keep us on the air, and for as little as $5 a month, you can join that community and begin to get some of the extra content that they enjoy each and every week. So go ahead while you're there at OutsideTheWalls.com. Look up in the top right-hand corner of the webpage, and there you'll see a support the show link hyphen Patreon. Uh, click that link and you will find out more information about how you can join this amazing community of supporters and get lots of fun content uh, on top of that. So let's go ahead right now and turn our attention over to our reading from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from Scripture today, I'm going to pull, uh, it's from the Feast of the Sacred Heart from yesterday. This is the first reading out of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will look after and tend my sheep. As a shepherd tends his flock when he finds himself among his scattered sheep, so I will tend my sheep. I will rescue them from every place where they were scattered, when it was cloudy and dark. I will lead them out from among the peoples and gather them back from the foreign lands. I will bring them back to their own country and pasture them among the mountains of Israel, in the land's ravines and all its inhabited places. In good pastures I will pasture them, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing ground. There they shall lie down on good grazing ground, and in rich pastures they shall be pastured. On the mountains of Israel I myself will pasture my sheep. I will give them rest, says the Lord God. The lost I will seek out, the strayed I will bring back, the injured I will bind up, the sick I will heal. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy, shepherding them rightly. That reading comes from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And what a perfect reading this is for the Feast of the Sacred Heart, because here it shows us uh, what, what's repeated over and over again in Scripture, that those who are humbled, God will exalt, and those who are exalted and exalt themselves, the Lord will humble. If you feel completely overwhelmed and unprepared and really unable to, uh, to meet God's expectations, guess what? Uh, he agrees with you, and he wants to bring you back from those places where you feel desolate and feel scattered, and he wants to bring you back into his fold where you'll find safety and nourishment because God loves you that much. And if you feel like you've got it all together and you've got everything figured out and you feel strong and sleek, he's going to shepherd you rightly, and that's going to put some things in perspective that may be hard. He's going to bring uh, humility. And even that humility is for the purpose of you finding safety in the right place. Uh, he's, you see, he's still shepherding those sheep that are sleek and strong. I will shepherd them, he says, rightly. You notice they are still his sheep, but he wants them to know that he is the shepherd. Our reading from church history today comes from a sermon by St. Augustine. The words we have sung contain our declaration that we are God's flock, 
for he is the Lord our God who made us. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Human shepherds did not make the sheep they own. They did not create the sheep they pasture. Our Lord God, however, because he is God and creator, made for himself the sheep which he has and pastures. No one else created the sheep he pastures, nor does anyone else pasture the sheep he created. In this song, we have declared that we are his flock, the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Let us listen, therefore, to the words he addresses to us as sheep. Earlier he addressed the shepherds, but now, now he speaks to the sheep. We listened to those earlier words of his, and we, the shepherds, trembled. But you listened without a qualm. What is to happen when we hear these words today? Are we in turn to be without qualm while you tremble? (laughs) By no means. We are shepherds, and the shepherd listens and trembles not only at what is said to the shepherds, but also at what is said to the sheep. If he does listen without a qualm to what is said to his sheep, he is not concerned for them. And further, on that occasion, we asked you in your charity to remember two points about us. First, that we are Christians. And second, that we are placed in charge. Because we are placed in charge, we are ranked among the shepherds if we are good. But because we are Christians, we too are members of the flock with you. Therefore, whether the Lord is addressing the shepherds or the sheep, we must listen to all his words and tremble. Our hearts must always remain concerned. And so, my brothers, let us listen to the words with which the Lord abrades the wicked sheep and the promises he makes to his own flock. You are my sheep, he says. Even in the midst of this life of tears and tribulations, what happiness, what great joy it is to realize that we are God's flock. To him were spoken the words, You are the shepherd of Israel. Of him it was said, The guardian of Israel will neither slumber nor will he sleep. He keeps watch over us when we are awake. He keeps watch over us when we sleep. A flock belonging to a man feels secure in the care of its human shepherd. How much safer should we feel when our shepherd is God? Not only does he lead us to pasture, but he even created us. You are my sheep, says the Lord God. See, I judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. What are goats doing here in the flock of God, in the same pastures, at the same springs? Goats, though destined for the left, they mingle with those on the right. They are tolerated now, but will be separated later. This is the way the patience of the flock develops and becomes like God's own patience. For it is he who will do the separating, placing some on the left and others on the right. That reading comes from a homily by St. Augustine, and there at the end he's referencing Matthew 25, where we hear the parable of the sheep and the goats, where uh, Christ separates the sheep from the goats, one on his left and one on his right, and he says to the ones, uh, enter into your rest because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a prisoner and I was sick and you visited me. Right? I was naked and you clothed me. 
whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. And, and as we go back to that Ezekiel passage, this is what I see there as he says that he will, uh, he will comfort those who are mourning and yet the strong and the sleek sheep, he will destroy, uh, what I shepherding them rightly. And the way that he does that is to, to correct us and to, to shatter our pride so that we can become humble sheep doing unto the least of these what we've done unto Christ. And most specifically, doing those things to the least of these, not so that Christ will love us, but because Christ has loved us and we love him so deeply. That the kind of action that flows out of, uh, of that gratitude is the action that makes a difference and that lasts. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I do want to encourage you, go to Colleen-Campbell.com. Take a look at that new book, The Heart of Perfection, available on Simon & Schuster. Today's show is brought to you by Rodney Moxley and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.